Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Keith Whittington. His bio is long and list of accomplishments and publications even longer, so here are the highlights. He is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics here at Princeton University, a member of the James Madison Program's Executive Committee, and the Chairman of the Academic Committee of the newly minted Academic Freedom Alliance. He is the author of many notable books, including most recently, Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the Present, and most relevantly to our discussion, Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech. Keith Whittington, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thanks for having me. Now, Keith, it's great to have you here to discuss academic freedom because, as I mentioned in your bio, you're the chairman of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance, an exciting new organization uh, which you helped stand up and which has been doing important work defending academic freedom across the country already. Uh, Maybe to begin, could, could you say a little about how and why the Academic Freedom Alliance, the AFA, came to be? Sure. So uh, the Academic Freedom Alliance has been uh, operating uh, publicly for a few months now. It is um, at heart um, a coalition of faculty from uh, across the political spectrum uh, at American universities uh, concerned with defending uh, principles of academic freedom and free speech um, on college campuses, primarily focusing on uh, professorial uh, speech um, in, in general. Um, We want to advance those principles generally, but we also want to try to defend individuals in specific cases and controversies uh, where their speech rights um, are coming under assault. Um, You know, for quite some time, there's been a number of us here at Princeton, but of course across the country as a whole, that have been um, quite concerned about pressures on free speech um, on college campuses, um, uh, various kinds of controversies that have arisen, some of which involve uh, students and um, outside speakers and their speech rights on college campuses, uh, many of which get a lot of attention uh, generally. Um, but there are also lots of controversies involving uh, faculty uh, speech rights um, on campuses. Um, and uh, we really thought that it would uh, be productive to find sort of new vehicles for helping to defend individuals who find themselves in the midst of these controversies Um, I think we're in a somewhat fortunate position um, in American universities that there are a lot of uh, robust protections uh, for faculty speech rights um, on the books. Um, uh, American constitutional law is fairly good um, about this, although not as worked out for faculty speech rights uh, in public universities um, as it is in some other um, context. Um, But often American universities have quite robust uh, contractual protections um, for uh, faculty speech rights. Um, But universities are not always very good at living up to those protections. Um, And so it's one thing to get protections on the books. It's another thing to actually implement them in practice. And so um, I think our challenge as an organization um, is to make sure that universities live up to their commitments um, and actually protect faculty when they find themselves in the midst of these um, controversies. And so 
Um, I've been uh, very pleased that we've been able to get a, um, a wide range of faculty who, who disagree about all kinds of things, um, including uh, politics and substantive uh, academic issues. Um, and we are going to disagree about uh, the particulars of the speech that uh, faculty who find themselves in the midst of controversies are engaged in. Um, but we all agree um, that's very important to protect the ability of faculty to uh, speak out publicly, ask hard questions, um, uh, make uh, controversial claims, um, and uh, not face sanction from their from their universities. And so we hope that we can uh, help a little bit um, in um, uh, keeping uh, campuses um, uh, living up to the kind of commitments they, they've already made and for many years have espoused. Um, and hopefully they will uh, continue to espouse and, and uh, remain committed to those principles of academic freedom going forward. Now, what is academic freedom for? Why is it something worth protecting and advancing? Yeah, I mean, a free speech, of course, in general, serves lots of functions um, in American society um, in general. Um, I've argued that it's particularly important in the academic context in universities, um, and universities have their own particular reasons for caring about free speech. And it may be worth disentangling a little bit free speech from academic freedom because they are slightly different concepts and protect slightly different things. Um, but at heart, um, uh, the concern about free speech um, on college campuses um, is centrally concerned with um, the utility of free speech and allowing us to advance the truth um, and improve human knowledge. That's the core of what we do on American universities, um, is that we try to um, uh, tell people what we think is true um, and communicate um, uh, true knowledge as best we can, but we're also trying to push the boundaries um, of what we know um, and expand uh, the scope of human knowledge. Um, and that requires the freedom to be able to ask difficult questions, to come to controversial conclusions, um, to be able to articulate what we think we understand about uh, human society, human beings, the way the world works um, in general, even when our own views are in conflict with uh, what society at large uh, might think or at least want to hear. Um, and so um, being able to successfully advance the truth and communicate the truth um, requires the uh, freedom to sometimes be wrong. It requires the freedom to be able to ask hard questions. It requires the freedom to sometimes get things wrong um, in the process of trying to uh, figure out what the truth is. Um, and so uh, universities really can't accomplish that core mission um, if uh, you can't guarantee to faculty um, the freedom to, in the classroom and in their research um, and in their public speaking, um, uh, to be able to say controversial things. Um, and uh, so at the very heart of why we ought to care about academic freedom and free speech on college campuses, especially for faculty, um, is that we ought to care about the ability of universities uh, to successfully advance uh, human understanding. Um, and, and free speech is crucial um, to being able to do that. What are the, the duties and the, and the responsibilities that accompany academic freedom? Yeah, that's a good question and often a uh, somewhat contentious one as to what the responsibilities um, are. Um, so the American Association of University Professors, which is a organization um, organized by faculty to defend academic freedom in the United States, was formed in the early 20th century, um, continues to exist um, today. Um, uh, to advance uh, the concerns of uh, uh, faculty at American universities, um, has long emphasized that um, uh, while it's critically important to protect um, the speech rights of faculty um, uh, in the classroom and in their research, 
um, and in their public engagement more generally, that it's also the case, um, the faculty do have some responsibilities in all these contexts um, and that they ought to be uh, conscious about those um, uh, responsibilities. And part of the challenge is trying to think about um, uh, what the nature of those duties are, but also um, to what degree is uh, our free speech rights contingent on um, adhering to those um, duties. And I think in some context, um, that's more true than in others. And so for example, uh, the AUP um, has um, uh, emphasized um, that it's important that faculty uh, be respectful um, when they can, that they um, uh, try to engage in civil discourse um, broadly, that they, um, as I try often characterize it, that we have a responsibility as academics to try to bring uh, light, not just heat, um, to uh, public discussions. We have lots of people uh, in our public life who are very concerned with bringing the heat uh, <laughs> to public discussions, and um, we don't need to be um, uh, pouring gas on, on public fires. Um, but what we ought to be doing as academics is trying to shed light when we can um, on public controversies and try to make it clear um, what we know, what we don't know, uh, what's contested, uh, where the truth uh, might, might lie. Um, and so we ought to strive as much as we can um, uh, to uh, productively um, involve ourselves in these kinds of public conversations. Um, we sometimes fail at <laughs> doing that though. And so while that is the aspiration, one kind of concern is, uh, well, what happens when we fall short of that aspiration, when we're not as civil as we ought to be, uh, we're not as respectful as we ought to be. Um, and that's particularly true in the age of social media where uh, faculty, like everybody else, uh, um, engages in social media. Uh, you find faculty on Twitter, uh, for example. And so uh, in the context of 280 characters engaging in a public uh, dispute, uh, how civil are we? Uh, and how respectful are we um, of other opinions and the, and the like? Um, and what happens when we uh, don't do as good of a job as we ought to? And, and the AUP is emphasized, and I think the Academic Freedom Alliance would likewise uh, want to emphasize um, the while it's the aspiration to be respectful and civil um, in those uh, kinds of public conversations, um, the free speech rights that faculty enjoy are not contingent upon that. Um, that even when you're uncivil, um, nonetheless, you have free speech rights um, and they ought to be um, uh, protected um, even in those contexts, um, even if we want to remind faculty that they ought to do better uh, in, in the future in that regard. Um, it's also true, though, in the context of scholarship and teaching that there are real duties that come along with academic freedom. Um, so, for example, um, uh, we think that faculty um, ought to enjoy um, academic freedom uh, in the classroom to engage uh, students in the topics that are under discussion. Um, but there are responsibilities that come along with that, um, uh, that you can't belittle and harass your students. You're trying to uh, lead them um, to a better understanding of a subject matter. And sometimes that means making them uncomfortable. Um, sometimes that means pressing them on difficult ideas. Um, that means pressing them to think harder um, in ways that are uh, sometimes difficult. Um, but it doesn't mean that you um, therefore have uh, a free reign to um, harass your students, to belittle your students, um, uh, just to simply make them um, uh, engaging, uh, engage in an unpleasant um, environment um, uh, in, in the name of, of trying to advance learning, that, that there is a responsibility there um, to treat your students with respect. Um, and equality, um, uh, even if they're making mistakes, even if you don't think they're working hard enough, even if, even if they seem to be struggling with um, ideas. And frankly, sometimes it's hard to disentangle those two things, right? What's the difference between making students uncomfortable um, because you're pressing them to think about hard and difficult issues that are sometimes very emotional issues 
um, uh, how's that different um, than situations in which students are genuinely being harassed and belittled, uh, for example? Yeah. Um, so there are always gray areas um, and, and borderline cases, uh, but in general, there's a, there is a certain responsibility of treating people um, respectfully uh, when we're engaged in the classroom. Likewise, you have a captive audience um, in the classroom and you, and you ought to be careful about how do you use that captive audience. And so we want to give faculty um, the freedom to teach their subject matter, um, but they shouldn't be introducing unrelated controversial content um, into the classroom. And so you don't expect your physics professor uh, to dedicate half of his uh, classroom time um, to talking about the last election results. Yeah, um, yeah. That's not why you're in the physics class. Um, and so while you want to give a lot of freedom to the physics professor to be exploring controversial topics in physics, um, and there are controversial topics in physics, um, and you don't want people um, uh, restricting his ability to explore those difficult um, uh, topics. Um, uh, at the same time, you don't want the professor then to be uh, going off topic um, mm -hmm. and taking advantage of the students um, uh, by engaging in unrelated uh, material. Um, and likewise, of course, in the context of scholarship, there's a, all kinds of duties and responsibilities in terms of, um, of, of not falsifying data, of not plagiarizing, of being careful um, in the kind of research um, you engage in. Um, but again, all those um, are um, separate from the question of, um, look, are there some kinds of answers you're not allowed to get uh, when you're doing your research? Are there some kinds of questions you're not allowed to ask um, uh, when you're doing your research? We want faculty to have the freedom to ask the hard questions. We want them to have the freedom to come up with uh, potentially controversial, uh, maybe even wrongheaded um, uh, answers um, because it's it's exploring those topics in, in uh, hard and difficult ways is how we actually make progress. Um, and so uh, while we uh, shouldn't tolerate and don't tolerate, and people certainly don't have the freedom to uh, falsify data um, and the like, um, uh, nonetheless, they do need the freedom um, to be able to uh, come to conclusions that everyone thinks is wrong um, and, that, and that people might think are controversial. And then the correct way of pushing back against that um, is to show why they're wrong um, and to continue um, uh, the, the debate. And so we have a responsibility um, to engage in ideas um, and engage with them seriously and sincerely and try to advance the conversation forward. And, and that's true about everything we do as academics, whether we're in the classroom, whether we're in scholarship or whether we're talking in public. Um, our goal ought to be um, how do we illuminate ideas? How do we advance ideas? How do we grapple seriously uh, with, with ideas um, so that we can make progress um, in better understanding the world? Now, you've helped start and now help run an organization that looks to defend academic freedom. So clearly you, you believe that it needs to be defended from something or someone. What do you see as, as the greatest threats to academic freedom today? Yeah, unfortunately, the threats are coming from all over the place, um, and 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 it's one you know. So the 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 uh, the good part of that is it makes it easier in some ways to to build the kind of broad coalition that we've built. Um, um, uh, I was uncertain as to how easy it would be to reach across the aisle um, and bring together um, academics from who have lots of disagreements, who um, are across the political spectrum. Um, uh, but it turns out, I think that everybody is worried <laughs> these days, um, that there's a lot of fear across the board. Um, and as a consequence, um, it's easier than one might imagine to be able to reach across the aisle and, and bring people together from the left and the right um, on this basic principle um, that's critically important to universities and how they operate and that is universal and how it's structured, um, that we need to be able to defend academic freedom. Um, uh, 
I think the concerns um, vary across uh, different disciplines, different kinds of universities, um, different ideological orientations as to where they see the threats most often coming from. Um, we certainly see plenty of threats on campus um, to academic freedom. And so uh, we see lots of students and unfortunately some other faculty as well as some campus administrators um, who are not very committed to principles of academic freedom uh, would, would very much like to suppress ideas they disagree with, um, whether those ideas are being expressed um, in the classroom or in scholarship uh, or in the public arena. Um, oftentimes, I think when we do see challenges to academic freedom on college campuses from members of the campus community themselves, um, uh, that often does uh, revolve around uh, things people have done in their research and scholarship or things people have done in the classroom um, that has um, uh, poked at some sacred cows that, uh, that uh, people on the campus community care about. Um, and because college campuses are often left-leaning on the whole, um, it often means that when uh, faculty who are on the political right are attacked, they're frequently being attacked um, by other members of the campus community um, because those are the people they've offended um, in that particular case. Um, unfortunately, though, we see plenty of instances in which um, faculty are also being attacked for, uh, by um, uh, people from outside um, the campus community, from off campus. Um, uh, sometimes there are people with connections to college campuses, so donors and alumni, uh, for example, who are unhappy with um, uh, what's happening on the university campus and pressuring uh, university leaders to uh, punish faculty uh, for something that they've said. Uh, but sometimes people who have no particular relationship to uh, the university campus, uh, politicians, state legislators, media figures um, who become excited about um, something that somebody has said that's controversial. Um, quite frequently, I think these kinds of off-campus um, attacks on academic freedom wind up involving um, uh, less research and teaching, although sometimes research and teaching, but often uh, things people have said in public debates, um, things people have said in social media, they've written something in an op-ed, um, or otherwise have appeared um, in the context of some public dispute, and as a consequence, reach a wider audience, um, attract more attention from a wider um, audience. Um, and often it's faculty on the political left who find themselves um, under assault in those kinds of cases, um, uh, precisely because a lot of people on campus are likely to agree with them uh, from expressing left-wing uh, positions, but people off campus are more likely to disagree with them. Right. Um, and as a consequence, when they run into challenges um, uh, from that direction, um, it's often uh, conservative critics, critics on the right who are attacking them from off campus and trying to put pressure on universities uh, to sanction um, and punish them um, in, in that context. Um, yeah, it, it was once the case that um, uh, people in the sciences, for example, the natural sciences and engineering, for example, thought they, that these kinds of disputes were primarily disputes affecting the humanities and social sciences, not their problem. Um, it was hard to get them <laughs> interested uh, in academic freedom issues because it was easy for them to take academic freedom for granted. Um, that's much less true these days. Um, I think people in the natural sciences and engineering, um, likewise, uh, see their own work coming under pressure, start seeing uh, where the uh, political controversies lie uh, relating to uh, natural science and engineering uh, work. Um, and uh, suddenly they're more interested in these debates than they, than they used to be. And so, um, you know, we once had, I think, the, um, uh, the, the, the relatively nice situation um, of thinking that uh, the attacks on academic freedom were relatively isolated. They were focused on a handful 
um, of particularly politically salient uh, kinds of research and teaching and subject matters. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it's increasingly the case that everything in the university um, uh, touches on something that is politically sensitive. Um, and as a consequence, everybody on the university campus uh, can start imagining themselves, um, particularly being in the firing line on these issues. We have lots of academics who listen to this podcast, lots of college students, uh, but, but we also have some everyday folk who, who may be listening to this and thinking, Oh, I'm sorry. This sounds like a Keith Whittington problem. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't. I'm, I'm not publishing any papers anytime soon. Why is this a Why is this an issue for me? Is this just a conversation of by and for people working in academia, but irrelevant to the 32 year old tech salesman? Yeah, well, it's a challenge in that regard, right? It is a bit of a special pleading for <laughs> for for university faculty, um, and and so it can be hard to get other people to appreciate uh, why they ought to care. Um, and why it, why it matters. Um, and, and some of the concern about um, uh, why should I care and why does it matter uh, does involve this question of uh, how widespread of a problem is this really? How severe of a problem is this really? Um, and uh, I don't think I even fully appreciated how significant of a problem it was. Certainly I spent much of my own career not worrying about this very much. Um, I took academic freedom for granted myself um, oftentimes. Um, I had other battles to fight that seemed much more salient uh, to my own career and my own work uh, than this particular um, uh, battle, um, in part because I had the good fortune of being in a place like Princeton University, which is actually very good on academic freedom issues. Um, and as a consequence, um, I, I felt very protected um, here. Um, but over the last several years, I've become increasingly concerned about the state of American university campuses in this regard and, and began to think this was a more significant problem, one that actually demanded attention and that I should set aside other uh, things I was otherwise focused on uh, because this too um, actually uh, required some uh, attention, even if it was not an immediate threat to my life. Um, and even if it wasn't an immediate threat to Princeton University, um, it was certainly a concern for lots of university faculty across the country um, and those of us who are in relatively privileged positions ought to be coming to their assistance um, and, and trying to help them out. Um, I have to admit, though, the more I become involved in this issue and not just sort of reading about it from afar, um, uh, certainly since we've founded the AFA, um, I, I have been struck by the extent to which I underestimate the scope of the problem, hmm. um, uh, that, that we are being flooded uh, with requests for assistance. Other organizations like ours um, are being flooded with um, uh, requests for assistance. Um, there are a lot of faculty who um, uh, are finding their um, rights being challenged, whose um, cases never reach public attention. Um, and uh, to some degree, that's to their benefit. Um, they would rather not be uh, in the midst of public controversies. They would rather resolve some of these uh, issues uh, quietly and privately, um, uh, rather than make them uh, into larger public scandals. Um, but it also means that what we see in the press is just the tip of the iceberg about how many faculty uh, come under challenge. And, um, and, and that sometimes does involve faculty actually getting fired um, uh, for having um, engaged in controversial speech. It means that articles get retracted um, and research gets squashed and censored um, in various ways. It means classes get canceled um, because they touch on uh, controversial issues. Um, it means lots of faculty um, are uh, nervous about what they might say. And as a consequence, they engage in a lot of self-censorship in order to try to avoid things that might be too controversial and might get them um, in trouble in various ways. And even when faculty 
um, or ultimately vindicated in the midst of these controversies. So somebody lodges complaints um, um, against them and ultimately the university um, recognizes um, uh, their rights in that context and, and does not attempt to fire them or otherwise uh, punish them. Um, the investigations themselves can drag on and be very expensive and very nerve wracking um, uh, for the faculty and very costly um, ultimately for them. Um, and universities I think are uh, just terrible on this dimension, uh, that they engage in lots of star chamber investigations um, that can drag on for a long time um, and uh, can cause lots of problems in, in, during the investigation, even if eventually uh, the faculty member uh, wins. Um, and so one reason why we need an organization like the AFA is to help people precisely in those kinds of um, uh, situations. Um, and hopefully in order in the long run uh, to push universities uh, to behave better. Um, but I mean, even if you recognize though the scope of those problems, even if you recognize the faculty across the country, across a whole range of, um, of, of disciplines um, feel under threat, um, you might think, well, look, if, if I'm not an academic, uh, why do I care um, about their speech rights? Um, and it is true, I think in some ways that university speech rights um, are a little distinct from others. And so um, it may well be the case that you can say, uh, well, they came for the professor, but I don't care because I'm not a professor, I'm a tech salesman um, and they won't come for me. And there's some truth in that. Um, uh, although I, I think you probably don't wanna be uh, uh, too cavalier about that attitude because I think as we've seen over the last few years, uh, the things that people once dismissed and said, well, these are speech controversies that happen on college campuses and then they don't affect the rest of us. Um, and then it turns out that all the students who were engaged in those speech controversies graduated. Uh, and next thing you know, the New York Times is facing the same speech controversies. Um, I don't think we should be um, arrest easy in the idea that, that campus level controversies will stay on college campuses. Um, these are uh, larger societal controversies that um, uh, in some ways universities are the canary in the coal mine um, about how free speech rights um, are dealt with um, in general. But I think even beyond that question, um, we ought to care because we ought to care about what universities do. Um, the, like I said, we, the core work of universities is trying to expand human knowledge and communicate human knowledge. And if you can't do that effectively on campuses, if faculty are um, uh, self-censoring, if their research is being censored, if their teaching is being censored um, in various ways, if faculty who are outside the mainstream in one fashion or another um, are being bullied or silenced or fired, um, we will have less knowledge than we otherwise would. Um, we will have more misinformation um, than we otherwise would. We will understand the world less well um, than we otherwise would. Um, and maybe in the short term, we can handle that and maybe it doesn't cause immediate uh, difficulties. Um, but in the long term, uh, we as a society will be worse off um, if we cannot advance uh, research and knowledge. And the fact is American universities um, have been critical to um, uh, certainly in the United States, but really across the world um, in expanding knowledge um, in ways that are extraordinarily valuable to the economy, uh, to how society operates, as well as all kinds of esoteric questions that maybe only academics care about. Um, and so, you know, I think at the end of the day, we want academics to be able to do what they do and society is better off for that, even if sometimes what we do uh, 
is discomforting um, and annoying uh, that, um, uh, that in the long run, we nonetheless benefit from uh, giving faculty the freedom to be discomforting and annoying um, because in, in the long run that helps society advance. Um, and if, you, if American universities cannot do a good job of that, um, uh, ultimately it will have consequences for the American society and American economy. Um, and it will also, I think, have consequences for um, America's leadership in the world, um, that, that faculty from across the world uh, have, um, for decades now, um, flocked to the United States precisely because of the kind of freedom that we offer faculty for doing their research here. Yeah. Um, and if uh, American universities cannot do that anymore, um, academics will find other places that where they can do that kind of research. And so um, that's true in the sciences, it's true in the humanities, it's in, true in the social sciences, um, that uh, this is a global marketplace uh, mm -hmm. for in the intellectual talent um, that operates in universities. Um, and if American universities uh, become bad on the academic freedom uh, front instead of leaders on the academic freedom front, um, then um, over time, that means that graduate students and, and faculty uh, will um, look for other places in the world. Where they will have more freedom to pursue their research and their teaching, and they will go there um, instead of uh, coming to the United States. Um, and in the end of the day, uh, again, that will make the United States uh, worse off. A topic that's been in the news lately, and depending on who you ask, they'll say this is making the United States worse off, and that's critical race theory. Yeah. Many, most on the right, seem to see it as something to be rooted out and quickly. And you take a different approach, and you said that, quote, critical race theory is a common and perfectly legitimate body of scholarship that should have a place in many university classes. End quote. And just recently, in fact, the AFA came out in support of Lynn Chandler Garcia, a professor at the Air Force Academy who has received intense criticism, including from members of Congress, uh, for teaching critical race theory. So let's stipulate a difference between, say, a K-12 classroom and a university lecture hall and start with the latter. I guess to begin, Keith, could you give us a working definition of critical race theory and then explain why it deserves a hearing in our universities? Yeah, so not so easy. So the critical race <laughs> theory is a... Um, uh, it's a large body of work, and, and at this point, it's also expanded, and, and there is, I think, a, a largely pointless public debate about <laughs> what exactly uh, the content of critical race theory is, and does this count or not, right? And so, um, uh, you know, at, at the very narrowest, um, uh, critical race theory is a very specific theory that's primarily in the law schools, um, initially that is focused on uh, uh, legal structures and legal rules um, and their um, consequences and effects on um, racial identity and um, the uh, success of uh, various racial groups um, in, in the United States. Um, that body of work um, uh, certainly makes a variety. It's, it's, it is for the most part a left-wing um, uh, body of work. It is um, for the most part, not particularly liberal. Um, so it is um, uh, left-wing, but not liberal um, and is uh, often critical um, of liberal um, uh, legal solutions um, uh, to uh, racial um, issues. Um, and it relies on a lot of uh, very contested assumptions about um, the way uh, race works and, um, and how law works um, uh, in general, but also has genuine insights um, into, for example, the way um, uh, legal structures and legal rules and public policy can have uh, various kinds of unintended as well as intended um, consequences um, uh, for uh, the success of various racial groups, um, uh, for example. 
um, as well as uh, doing, I think, quite useful uh, work uncovering the ways in which uh, racism has sometimes been a feature of American policymaking and American lawmaking and politics um, uh, at various points in American history. Um, I have lots of disagreements with that body of work in general. I think there are some genuine insights that some of it offers. Um, I think a lot of it's not so insightful. Um, uh, um, but you know, those are normal academic um, controversies and disagreements um, that exist in, in academia in general. Um, so uh, you know, I think the the my concern as an academic relative to that is is not um, uh, whether or not critical race theory is a great thing and we ought to be doing lots more of it. Uh, in general, I think it's uh, not something we necessarily need to be doing lots more of. Uh, and but but it's but it's part of um, the academic debate. And if we think it's wrong, we ought to be exposing why it's wrong within an academic uh, context and and criticism. Uh, in precisely in order to demonstrate where the truth is in order to better advance our understanding of what things are true. Um, in, in having uh, serious, uh, difficult debates uh, with sometimes quite radical critics um, of, um, of a liberal racial order, for example, um, is useful in trying to um, uh, identify where the truth is and, and better understand it and explain it, as well as identify where the problems are in American society and, and try and how best to try to uh, deal with them. And if we take political sledgehammers to um, uh, these kinds of academic debates uh, in order to try to restrict the scope of those debates or drive them out, um, ultimately we're gonna be worse off, right? We're not gonna know um, uh, where the criticisms are. We're not gonna know what's wrong with those literatures um, um, or, or those arguments. Um, we're not also not gonna see where they're right um, and, and uh, how we ought to grapple with the fact that they're sometimes um, uh, right. Um, so part of my concern about um, uh, the current political environment and the criticisms of um, critical race theory that, that goes along with that um, is that it can lead to some pretty ham-handed political solutions that will result in a lot less freedom to do the kind of teaching and research that we expect to occur on college campuses. Mm -hmm. um, these are these intervening in these kinds of academic debates is, is very hard from a legislative level um, in a way that is at all productive. And, um, and a lot of this, the bills that have been floating around state legislatures um, are uh, are, are not particularly productive uh, in how they uh, identify they're very sweeping um, in, in the problems that they want to resolve and and as a consequence um, can have just extraordinary chilling effects not only for those who actually um, do critical race theory but for a lot of other people um, who don't do anything regarding critical race theory but nonetheless might well run afoul of these kinds of legal restrictions on what kind of teaching and research they, they're allowed to do uh, within, within public universities. And so I think we have to be very cautious, um, uh, even when we're upset about um, uh, these particular um, academic debates and what kind of scholarships being produced, we ought to be very cautious about how we try to address them. It's also true, I think a lot of the politics and policymaking surrounding this though, don't have a lot to do with the academic debates, right? Yeah. People were upset about corporate training, what's happening in elementary schools and uh, bad teaching associated with that. They're upset about Robin DiAngelo and, and uh, uh, sort of public discourse um, about race. And I understand those uh, concerns. I share a lot of those concerns, um, but a lot of that is pretty far field from uh, critical race theory as such as it's practiced in an academic context. And so if what we're worried about really is uh, 
uh, what's happening in, in corporate training uh, sessions, um, but then we adopt policies that are restricting um, uh, academic research. Um, uh, we're really aiming at the wrong problem. Uh, we're using the wrong tools for addressing that problem um, and, and we're gonna be worse off. Um, part of the specific concern with Professor Garcia at the Air Force Academy though is that not only is there an attack on, on critical race theory as such, but the specifics of that attack was also, she wrote an op-ed defending her teaching of critical race theory and explaining why she does it um, in the Air Force Academy. And then there were calls for her to be fired because she wrote an op-ed expressing this view. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a very common kind of concern for academic freedom, a very basic kind of concern in academic freedom. In some ways, it doesn't matter at all what the specific content of her op-ed was and what exactly she was defending. She could have been defending anything. She could have been defending originalism um, uh, in an op-ed in the Washington Post. And instead of being attacked from the political right, she could have been attacked from political left and saying, how dare you be teaching uh, this view about the Second Amendment or this view about originalism uh, in a university? You ought to be fired for doing it. Um, And the crucial thing from an academic freedom perspective is we want to say, it doesn't matter what you write in the op-ed, you shouldn't be fired uh, for for writing a controversial op-ed and stating controversial opinions in in your op-ed. And so there's this this very narrow point um, about uh, the, the necessity of protecting the freedom of faculty to intervene in public debates and be able to engage in those debates um, without fear uh, that there's going to be pressure on their university employers to sanction them uh, because they express an opinion that some people would think is, is wrong or controversial. Now, uh, of course, as our listeners have heard, your focus is on academic freedom in our institutions of, of higher learning. But uh, so if we could just do this very briefly. Yeah. K-12 classrooms. Right. Uh, is the mission of our elementary, middle, and high school uh, high school classrooms the same? Is academic freedom equally important there? And, and if not, what, what are the governing principles? Yeah, I think it's a whole different ballgame once we start talking about K through 12. And even in the context of the Air Force Academy, it actually is a slightly different ballgame as well, right? I mean, so, yeah. so then the military academies have recognized um, a space for academic freedom. They've adopted their own academic freedom policies. That's relatively new. Um, And so across the history of the military academies, they recognize a lot less room for academic freedom than they do now. Um, I think that's for the better um, uh, for their purposes, but but in part, that's because the military academies serve a very specific purpose. It's not quite the same purpose normal universities uh, serve. And so uh, they have a specific mission in which academic freedom um, uh, is somewhat more restricted. Um, Their expansion of academic freedom in part went along with hiring um, civilian instructors, for example. So military academies used to have only uh, military officers um, who served as uh, professors and instructors. Um, And now they have civilians who serve in those roles um, as well. So they tried to open up more space uh, for academic freedom in general, more space for research and teaching. Um, and, And I think that's to the good for military academies, but they're also some choices that can reasonably be made. And likewise, Congress might, through its legislative power, decide they want to restrict that in various ways. And and I think they have actually a fair amount of authority in the specific context of military academies if they wanted to do it through a statutory process of trying to guide the curriculum um, of the military academy. And that may or may not be a good idea for Congress to do that in those specific uh, contexts. I'm not necessarily optimistic Congress do a good job um, of doing it, Um, but they do actually have some real authority in that regard. In K through 12, they have even more authority. That is to say, state legislatures do have an important role in setting the curriculum um, for what we expect to be taught in K through 12 classes. These are 
public schools. They operate to express um, uh, the government's view about what ought to be taught. And the government then has a necessary role in um, determining what ought to be taught um, in K through uh, 12 classes. And as a consequence, um, the kind of scope of academic freedom for K through 12 teachers is much more limited um, uh, than it would be for university professors because we just think they serve a different function um, than university professors do um, uh, in general. Now, there are questions about how exactly state governments, for example, ought to um, uh, try to exercise that authority of guiding the curriculum in classrooms. I often think the state, uh, that legislation is um, not going to be the most useful vehicle uh, for trying uh, to, to do that, um, to guide the curriculum of, um, of what's happening in public schools. Um, but, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that um, the public school curriculum is determined through a political process um, and is going to be restricted in various ways uh, through the political process. And we ought to have substantive debates about what's a good thing to be teaching in public schools and what's not such a good thing to be teaching in public schools. Um, but that's a somewhat separate debate than the question of, well, what do I have the absolute freedom and right um, yeah. to teach? So for example, if a teacher um, uh, in a public school, not only said, you know, look, I have an academic freedom right to teach critical race theory in my social science classes, but likewise, you can imagine a teacher saying, um, I have academic freedom right to create, teach creationism in my science classes. In both those contexts, we can imagine um, political officials saying, no, no, we actually don't want that being taught in our public schools. We have a different idea about what you ought to be doing in your science and your social science classes, and here's the curriculum that ought to guide you. Um, and, it's, and that's appropriate. That's an appropriate intervention that those government officials have the right authority uh, to intervene in that context. And they have an appropriate expectation that teachers are going to teach the curriculum um, that they've laid out, uh, not um, go off and teach uh, their own ideas um, about what they, ought to th they think students ought to be uh, doing. Um, so, you know, the K, K through 12 education serves a very particular function. Teachers are serving a particular function. The way we've set up K through 12 education, they're all public schools and operate um, through public direction and public funding. And so as a consequence, um, they're gonna be much more heavily regulated. Um, and the scope of academic freedom there is, a, is, is really much more restricted and, and different um, than, than what we expect in universities. Um, whereas in universities, even public universities, uh, we expect a, a much greater degree of freedom uh, for faculty to be able to explore uh, difficult and controversial ideas. And we expect much less political intervention uh, in determining what the curriculum is going to be um, in, in public universities. If, if uh, state governments, for example, got into the business of uh, trying to micromanage the curriculum of state universities, the way they manage the curriculum of K through 12 um, uh, education, uh, you would have very different universities that are not really capable of accomplishing the purposes that generally we think universities are trying uh, to, to accomplish. Um, and, and so as a, historically then we've tried to avoid um, having state governments intervene in that same kind of way. Um, but we shouldn't pretend like K through 12 is, in the, is, is similarly situated um, or serve the same mission and function um, as, as what universities do. And it's one reason why AFA, uh, the Academic Freedom Alliance is, is limited to focusing on university professors and, and more of a limited 
focusing on university professors in the American context. Um, the legal rules are just different in the United States than they are in other countries. Um, and so it's a much more complicated thing to think even about how Canadian professors, um, what kind of academic freedom, the rights they enjoy, let alone American professors. And so, and so we wanna restrict it to a common set of, of legal uh, kinds of issues and, and principles that have been broadly adopted in the United States. Um, and likewise, those principles and legal principles are different um, at the university level than they are uh, for primary and secondary school teachers. And so there's just not enough commonality there um, uh, to uh, be thinking about them as all falling within the same umbrella. We have to just think about them separately. Sure. We're drawing near the end here. I'm going to try to squeeze two more questions in here. And the first, I don't want to spend much time on the specifics of it. And that's the case of Nicole Hannah-Jones, yeah. the architect of this New York Times, the infamous New York right. Times 1619 project. Uh, these are the, the, the details, as I recall them. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones was up for a tenured position at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She was recommended by the faculty for this position. In an uncommon, I don't know that it's unprecedented, but certainly an uncommon move, the university's board of trustees stepped in and said, no, no tenured position, a five-year uh, appointment. You were outspoken uh, calling this strike against academic freedom. This caught some to your right by surprise. And invariably, when we're having these conversations, I know you've heard this. Yeah. Keith, you're being naive. You're defending the academic freedom of people who would never, who will never return the favor. You defend their right to speak and they fight tooth and nail to deny yours. This is yeah. war to them and it needs to be war to you or you'll be destroyed. How do you respond to that? Well, I think that's certainly true that I, <laughs> I'm willing to defend people who, um, who would not be equally willing to defend me. Um, uh, for various reasons, in part because they're not sufficiently committed to academic freedom, maybe they're not committed to it at all, don't actually think it's an important principle. Uh, there are academics who do not uh, be believe in academic freedom and think it's an important principle. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the uh, complication of being a small liberal in that sense, right? Yes. They, they, you uh, believe in certain procedural protections, you believe in principles like free speech, even for those who don't believe in it themselves, right? It's the classic dilemma um, of do you defend the speech rights of Nazis, uh, for example, even though uh, they would not return the favor <laughs> and grant you any speech rights if they actually ran the government. Um, themselves. And um, I, I think in lots of contexts, it's very important for uh, those of us who believe in liberal principles in general to defend uh, the application of those liberal principles, uh, even to very intolerant individuals um, who uh, themselves do not believe in those principles and are, and are not willing um, to, to advance them. And you do that precisely because it's important to put in place these principles and have them operate uh, generally within within. Uh, whatever environment we're talking about, in this case, in the university environment. Um, so my concern in this specific context, and I actually don't know whether um, she would uh, be willing to defend academic freedom principles in a principled way, or if she would be willing to defend me. I'm not necessarily optimistic about it, but I don't know uh, that for sure, uh, one way or another. It's not crucial, though, to my willingness to defend her in this context. Right. Um, what's What's Important, I think, to my mind about this um, is the question is is again just like in the in the context of the Air Force Academy and the and the professor wrote the op-ed um, is you got, you have to strip aside some of the substance and think about um, uh, what's the what's the circumstances that we're talking about and so in that case the question was if if a professor publishes a controversial op-ed 
Um, is it appropriate for them to be fired for doing that? Um, and I think the answer has got to be no. And it really doesn't matter what the content of the op-ed is. Likewise, in this context, I think the fundamental question is, what are the circumstances in which we think it's appropriate for a board of trustees or regents or whatever the relevant governing board is called in a particular university, when is it appropriate for them to overrule the, the recommendation of the faculty um, and university administrators in order to deny um, a tenured position or a faculty employment uh, for um, a faculty member? Um, and I think the, the, the best stance on this is that a board of uh, trustees ought to almost never um, uh, intervene to overturn um, the recommendation of uh, the faculty on these things. Um, in this particular context, you know, there are claims about professional qualifications, there are claims about the quality of the work and, and substantively how valuable it is um, in her particular case. I understand those concerns. I share a lot of those concerns. It's another one of these instances where I'm willing to defend somebody I actually don't agree with uh, very much. Um, if I was on the faculty at North Carolina, I don't know that I would have voted uh, in favor of her uh, getting a tenured appointment there. Um, it's a question of, of institutional design, um, whether um, the, right the right body to make that decision as to whether or not to give her tenure um, is ultimately the faculty involved or whether it's ultimately the board of trustees. Mm -hmm. um, and, and my concern is if we open that door and say we want board of trustees to intervene in these disputes and, and uh, make decision, substantive decisions about whether or not to give people tenure, um, that, that all you're doing is opening those up for political disputes across the board. And in some red states and public universities, um, that will mean uh, that you will have uh, conservative boards of trustees who will want to turn down uh, uh, faculty appointments to people on the left. Um, but that means that lots of other universities, um, it will be the opposite. Um, and there will be political campaigns uh, for uh, left-leaning board of trustees to turn down faculty uh, from the political right, um, as well as all kinds of other kinds of uh, less politically salient um, disagreements as well. And so one reason why the AUP was founded in the early 20th century, for example, is precisely because um, a powerful alumni and donors and trustees would intervene to say, uh, you have some economist who's writing academic articles that go against the economic interest of my company. Um, and, so, and therefore you should fire them and, and prevent them from continuing to publish things um, that will make me less money um, as a consequence of that. That's a terrible way for universities to be run, right? We need, we need university faculty to be willing um, to do research, uh, even um, if it's um, undermining the economic interest um, of a powerful donor. Um, and uh, because otherwise we don't learn the truth um, about, those, about those subject matters. Um, and if we go back into a world in which trustees feel free um, to reject faculty appointments, um, uh, sometimes it's gonna be these highly salient political controversies um, that, that matter for the cultural war. Um, but a lot of times it's gonna be something else. It's gonna be something that's much lo lower profile, um, much cruder um, and, and, uh, but still consequential for the quality of the research and teaching that gets done um, in universities. And so I think the safest, best way of preserving universities to do what they do um, is to keep the board trustees out of this decision, kind of decision-making. They shouldn't be making substantive decisions about uh, which faculty deserve uh, tenured appointments and which ones uh, do not. Okay. A final question, returning to the Academic Freedom Alliance and talking about ends. What does success look like to you and are you optimistic that you'll achieve it? 
Uh, I'm not optimistic <laughs> but in some sense, right? Because ultimate success would be, uh, we don't have these controversies anymore, yeah. um, right? I mean, so, so I'm also on the board of directors for FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education that was founded what, about 20 years ago to defend primarily student speech rights um, on college campuses during sort of the first political correctness wave um, of the 1990s. And the, the people who founded that thought this will be a short-term endeavor. Uh, we'll fight this fight and all this will go away. Uh, we won't need to do this anymore. Um, and instead, FIRE is busier than it's ever been, right? <laughs> defending uh, student speech rights in particular, but also the speech rights of faculty and, and others um, as well. Um, so uh, unfortunately, these are not going to be transitory disputes. These are long-term battles. Um, uh, we go through waves of, of these problems. Um, I hope that we will uh, soon be back into a period in which this is background noise uh, rather than uh, what I think it is now, which is an all hands on deck <laughs> crisis. Yeah. Um, uh, but, um, and if we can get back to a situation where it's mostly background noise, I think that's mostly success. <laughs> um, and you'll still need an organization like ours um, in that context, because there'll still be lots of individuals um, who will be struggling to defend um, themselves uh, and they'll need help doing it. Um, but um, uh, so I don't think success means that an organization like ours won't need to exist. I don't think success will mean we won't have these controversies anymore. I think what success will mean is that most universities will get the message um, that they have to actually continue to protect these uh, principles of, of academic freedom that they've committed themselves to. Um, hopefully, um, they will not backslide on their commitments to those principles. And one thing I really worry about is that, is that they will. Um, so I really worry that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, um, uh, the rules on the books will not be nearly as protective of academic freedom as they are uh, right now. So not only will we have to worry about, are you implementing your protections, but do you even have protections? Um, and, and so I think part of the crucial battle right now is to make sure that we keep the protections we have um, and that we actually implement them correctly. Um, and we discourage universities from giving in uh, to uh, you know, what might be characterized as cancel culture mobs, uh, regardless of where they come from and who they're targeting, um, uh, to convince universities that they have to resist those kinds of pressures. Uh, and, and ultimately they have to defend faculty who've done something controversial um, in, in public. Well, Keith, on, on that note, we'll let you get back to fighting that good fight and that long fight. Uh, our guest today has been Keith Whittington, we have been discussing academic freedom, critical race theory in the classroom, and the crucial work of the Academic Freedom Alliance. Keith, thanks so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. There you have it, Madisonians. Keith Whittington on academic freedom and the excellent work of the Academic Freedom Alliance. You'll find several links in the show notes this week to AFA's website, to their new podcast, a few of Keith's recent articles, as well as a link to his website, where you can find additional information about his work. Finally, I ask that you please take 30 seconds to give us a five-star rating on iTunes if you haven't done so already, and please do share Madison's notes with your friends and family. With that, we'll bring things to a close here. Thanks, as always, for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time. Here on Madison's Notes.